Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, for I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord Almighty, I took you from the pasture, from, the follow, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be with him a father, and he shall be, my, be a son." And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your, th- your, th- your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so we have the pleasure of Tim Frisbee speaking to us this evening, coming from the depths of South London. Um, Tim leads the South service with his wife, Jackie. So please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. The depths of South London, just over the river. That's where I come from. And it was beautifully sunny there. I don't know what's happened to East London when I got here, hence the T-shirt. Anyway, good afternoon. It is great to be with you. Feels like I haven't been here for ages, probably January since the last time. And so um, it is good to be here today. Jackson's her love as well. She got to be here when Joel and Dee were, whatever you would call it, <laughs> prayed over as they led the service. I was at home looking after our two beautiful girls. Um, so, yeah, as Philip said, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series on the life of King David. Um, just to give you some context for where our passage comes in the whole of the story of Samuel, here's a quick overview um, from the amazing website, um, thebibleproject.com, and they do these kind of things for every single book of the Bible. So if you ever want to get kind of a clear overview, bibleproject.com is a great place to go. And we see that in the books of Samuel, we have three main characters. We have Samuel, we have Saul, and we have David. So Samuel is a prophet, and when the people of Israel said, hey, we want a king like all the other kingdoms, God sends Samuel to Saul to anoint him as king. And he becomes the first king of Israel. And initially, everything looks great. He looks great. He looks like a king. But there's some kind of stuff going on on the inside, which isn't so great. And very soon, he's done some stuff which disqualifies him from leading Um, the people of Israel, and God takes kind of the kingdom from him. And he says to Samuel, go to this other guy, go to David, anoint him as king. And actually, David is only 12 years old. 
this craziness. 12 years old when he's anointed king of Israel. So obviously he doesn't take the throne straight away. And so in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we have this kind of decline of Saul as we have kind of this rise of David. And we see David go from this shepherd boy to a giant killer to a, a military general to someone who becomes a fugitive running away from Saul who's trying to kill him to finally, at the beginning of uh, 2 Samuel, he is crowned king of Israel. And at the point of our passage today, he is in a good place. He's secured his borders. He's kind of built his capital city. He's built this amazing palace for himself. As we saw last week, he's brought the ark of God back into Israel, into Jerusalem. Things are going well. And he thinks to himself, it's not right that I should be living here in this amazing palace, but God should be dwelling in a tent. I will build God a temple, he thinks to himself. So he goes to Nathan, his mate, a prophet, and he says, this is what I'm thinking. And Nathan says, go for it. I mean, I can't imagine any church leader where someone come to them and said, I want to invest in a building project for your church. Anyone saying anything but go, do all that the Lord has put in your heart. But then God speaks to Nathan, and he has a different word. He gives this message to David through Nathan. And uh, the message he uses um, is a play on the word house. So David says to God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a dwelling, a temple. And God says to David, well, thanks, but no thanks. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And God promises David that his kingdom would go on, that his son would sit on the throne. I mean, that didn't happen to Saul. Saul's son didn't sit on the throne. David did, but he's promised David it will be your son that sits on the throne, your son that builds the temple. But not just that, he says that one of your sons, one of your descendants will also sit on the throne. And this guy will be so close to God that he will be known as the son of God. And this guy's kingdom would go on forever. And in this chapter, we have the longest speech given by God since Mount Sinai, since the law was given to Moses. So this is a very significant chapter. It's a very important part of understanding the whole of the Old Testament narrative. And God is introducing here what is known as the Davidic covenant. It's the promise from God, that the way he was going to undo the effects of the fall, the way that he was going to defeat evil, sin, and death, the way he was going to redeem humanity and restore creation to the way it was, was through a just and righteous king. Now, in some sense, there's nothing new about this promise. We see straight after Adam and Eve mess everything up in the Garden of Eden, God comes to them and gives them a promise, and he says, a son of Eve will come one day to crush evil and sort everything out. And a little later, he promises that that son of Eve would then come through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. That through Abraham's son, all of the people on the earth would be blessed. And the rest of Genesis is a kind of a tracing of this line of promise. So from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob and Leah to you get to Jacob's 12 sons. And we see that it's not the first son that gets chosen, Reuben. It's not the most famous son, Joseph. It is Judah. So we get this kind of funneling down of this promise from kind of humanity to Abraham to Israel to Judah and finally to David. And if to hammer the point home, just look where God tells David to go and get crowned in 2 Samuel 2. God says to go to the place of Hebron. Well, what's so significant about Hebron? Well, it is the only place in the whole of the land of Israel that Abraham had purchased a plot of land hundreds of years previously, all the way back in Genesis 23. So you see, God is linking the promise to Abraham that his son would be a blessing to the world, to this promise to David that his son would be a king that blesses the world. 
So who was this son? Well, at first it looks like it might be the son who followed him, his actual son, Solomon. It's Solomon who builds the temple, symbolizing the permanent presence of God amongst Israel. And it's Solomon who oversees this most remarkable period of peace and prosperity in the land of Israel. Producing the glory of Israel is being talked about all over the world, and kings and queens come flocking to see it. But very, very soon, things start to unravel. And what starts looking out like a dream come true, the answer to the promise, turns into this nightmare. Solomon really quickly forgets that the role of the king is to look after the people, not the other way around. I mean, this is a guy who treats women as commodities, to be bartered um, and exchanged for political alliances. And he ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then in order to complete all of his grand building projects, he not only uses his enemies as slave labor, which is actually prohibited in the law. God says you're not to use the foreigner that way. But by the end of his reign, he starts enslaving his own people and kind of giving them this heavy burden of taxation. See, Solomon begins to act just like every other king. And his kingdom starts to look just like every other kingdom. And at the end of the reign, he actually has more in common with Pharaoh than he does with his father. And the story of the next few books of the Old Testament is a story of king after king after king reigning like Solomon rather than reigning like David. Reigning over kingdoms that just look like any other kingdom of the world rather than reigning over the kingdom that God had promised. And this happens until Israel looks so different to how God intended it to be that he's no longer happy to put his name to it. He's no longer happy to endorse Israel as his, and so he removes himself from the equation. And he lets the kingdom of Israel fall into disrepair. First of all, it splits into two kingdoms. Then the northern kingdom is conquered and the people are carried away in exile. Then the southern kingdom is conquered. Jerusalem is conquered. The temple is ripped down and the people are sent into exile. But even in exile, God speaks to the people this promise through prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel that one day, one day, another king would come. One day, another king would come and restore Israel. And God would use that king to bless the whole world. And so for hundreds of years, the Israelites wait and wait and wait until one day a, teenage, uh, a teenager called Mary who's engaged to be married to a guy called Joseph, who's from the line of David, from Bethlehem, a town in Judah. An angel appears to her and says, your son is going to be born, this miracle baby of God, and he's going to be the savior of the world. And in case we are in any doubt about how kind of Jesus fits into this narrative of the promise of a king in a kingdom, look how Matthew starts his gospel. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a Greek word for Messiah, which is the promised king. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus and the kingdom that he brings is the fulfillment of all of these promises that God has been making for thousands of years. He's the son of Eve. He's the son of man come to crush evil once and for all. He's the son of Abraham come to bless the whole world. And he's the son of David come to rule over a kingdom of righteousness and justice a kingdom of peace and prosperity, a kingdom of compassion and love that will extend over the whole of creation. Okay, you might be thinking, that's pretty interesting. That's an interesting overview. I like the way that Jesus and David are linked. But what exactly does that have got to do with me living here in London, trying to work out how my faith intersects with my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to try and explain. Firstly, I think it is very helpful for us to know all this 
so that we understand what Jesus meant when we see in the Gospels that he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is here. See, this wasn't a threat, which is often how it's preached, often how we hear it. This wasn't Jesus saying, hey, sort your act out, God's close by. This was a declaration that God's promised kingdom, the kingdom that will put everything right, was now here because the king who would put everything right is now here. And repent just means turn around, go a different way. So instead of following this king and these kingdoms, come and follow this king and his kingdom. Jesus' message wasn't that if people believed in him, that he would kind of whisk them away to this disembodied paradise in heaven as a reward. Jesus' message was that the kingdom of heaven had come to earth, which means that the kingdom of heaven is an embodied kingdom. isn't just kind of a quote-unquote spiritual kingdom that sits above the complexities of life, but it's a kingdom that affects every part of life. Affects the way we do family and local community. Affects the way we do education and business, the arts, media, fashion, politics, sport. Every area of life is supposed to be affected by the rule and reign of Jesus. And that is why at Christchurch we have this vision to be for the cultural and social renewal as well as the spiritual renewal of this great city that we live in. Because we have a kingdom understanding of the good news of Jesus. We understand that these things can't be separated. Jesus didn't separate them. Like, his kingdom is embodied, and so we embody it here. And everyone in Jesus' day got this. They all got that he was talking about this everyday life-impacting kingdom. His enemies got this. The Roman officials, the Jewish kings, the religious leaders, all of them understood that Jesus was setting himself up as a rival king in a rival kingdom. And that he was going to fundamentally change the power structures that existed. The power structures that they relied upon. I mean, that is why they killed him. They didn't kill Jesus because he went around saying, hey, people love God more and love everyone else more too. They killed him because he was about to disrupt things. Because he was a threat to the structures that gave them power. And the disciples got this too. When Jesus asked them, who do you think that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah the promised king, the son of God. Linking back to the passage that we read today. Jesus, you are the promised king. Your kingdom is the promised kingdom. Let's see it come. Well, yes, you might say, but didn't Jesus himself say that his kingdom wasn't of this world? Good Bible knowledge. Yes, he did. Let me explain. After Jesus had been arrested, he's taken to Pontius Pilate, which we read in the creed earlier. Pontius Pilate is the Roman official in charge of Jerusalem. He's the guy that can kill him or not. They have to go to him. And so Pilate asked him outright, Jesus, are you a king? And the question underneath that question is, have you come to overthrow Rome? And what does Jesus say? He says, yes. He says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, you could read that as Jesus saying, my kingdom is just kind of a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. If it was an earthly kingdom, my earthly followers would have fought for me. But I don't think that is what he means here, because actually that is exactly what did happen. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the, the temple soldiers come to arrest him. And what does Peter do? He takes out a sword in order to defend him and to fight the way out of there. And because he is a fisherman, not a soldier, he just kind of lunges at the nearest guy and manages, all he manages to do is cut his ear off. And what does Jesus do? He stops the violence dead. He heals the man's ear. 
And he turns to Peter. He rebukes him. He says, put your sword away. He says, don't you think that if we wanted to do it this way, I could call on my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. And that is a lot of angels. I mean, if we're going to do this right, we could do this right. But that is not the way we're going to do it. Jesus is saying to both Peter and Pilate that although he is a king, although his kingdom is an earthly, physical kingdom with actual physical followers, and although he does indeed have a plan to overthrow the tyranny of Rome, his kingdom is not like the other kingdoms. In fact, you could say it is so different that it comes from another place. And Jesus' kingdom is different in two ways. Firstly, it's a kingdom without borders. Doesn't mean it's disembodied, just means it's not geographically located. It is open to everyone. Everyone can join this kingdom. Everyone can come under the reign of this king. But secondly, and this is what I think Jesus is really getting at with Peter and Pilate. Jesus says, because his kingdom is a kingdom of heaven, because it reflects the heart and character of the God of heaven, his kingdom will not use the tactics that the kingdoms of the world use. Jesus' kingdom will not use violence to defeat its enemies. It will not harness the power of hate to achieve its goals. It will not win through killing. That may be the way that every other kingdom of the world operates, but that is not the way that his kingdom is going to operate. And with the events of the last few weeks, it feels important that we need to say this stuff out loud. Anyone can call themselves a Christian, but if you are trying to bring change through violence, then it's legitimate for us to call into question, are you really following the king that you say you are? And you see glimpses of this nonviolence even in the kingdom of David. As Andy mentioned a few weeks ago, David spent much of his time as a fugitive running away from Saul who was trying to kill him. And two, on two different occasions, he has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't do it. He refuses. He will not start his kingdom through an act of violence. He is willing to wait many more years, suffer much more hardship than to start his kingdom through killing. And I think it's quite significant that in Chronicles, we are told the reason that David isn't allowed to build the temple is because he is a man of war, because he has shed too much blood. God did not want a man like that building his temple. He wanted a man of peace. But let's be honest. These are only glimpses of nonviolence in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a violent book. But as you read through it, as you read through this narrative arc, this upward trend is towards nonviolence. It's towards compassion, towards forgiveness, towards self-sacrificing love. And what is only glimpsed in David and his kingdom shines out in Jesus and his it shines out in passages like Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the way the world works. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, kill your enemy if need be. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, because that's what he does. And then obviously it shines out most through the cross, a cross is a mirror into the very heart of God. And in Jesus' death, we see a God who is motivated wholly by love, not by hate. We see a God who is willing to forgive rather than a God who is willing to take revenge. And we see a God who is willing to destroy evil by being killed rather than by killing. Because that's what the death and resurrection of Jesus does. It destroys the, the, the power that evil has over us and the power of evil within us without destroying us in the process. 
It empties death of its power. So we no longer have to fear it. We no longer have to fear the kingdoms of the world because all they can do is kill us. That is it. But death is no longer the end. And it breaks the power of sin that has kept us enslaved. It frees us to be divine image bearers once more. Jesus dying was the only way that God could neutralize evil without killing us in the process. And so that's what he did. In order to turn us, the enemies of God, into his friends, he chose the harder, the costlier, the more time-consuming way of self-sacrificial love. And his followers have been doing the same ever since. Which means that if we are to join with God in bringing his kingdom to this world, if we are to work for justice and righteousness, if we are to stand up against oppression and hatred, if we are to protect the poor and the vulnerable and speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves, it is imperative that we use the same methods as the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdoms of this world. And one of the most obvious examples of this is the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 50s and 60s America. Listen to this uh, part of one of King's sermons that he gave in 1957, kind of in the midst of everything that was going on. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall continue to love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us for dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win our freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. I remember when I read that as a student, being completely blown away. It just seemed otherworldly, like it had come from a different place. That isn't the way that the world works. This truly felt like heaven. To be fighting not just for yourselves, not just for your people, but also for your enemies. To be willing to sacrifice your comfort, even your life, to work towards a solution that wasn't just inverting kind of this oppressive power structure so that those on the bottom were now on the top, but working for true equality. To see your enemies as people made in the image of God, to be loved, even if that image has been distorted by hate. I mean, I just couldn't get past this. It's no wonder that they hold Martin Luther King Jr. Day in America because this is just so amazing. Yes, he was flawed. No, he didn't get everything right. But what a way to live. What a vision of the kingdom of God at work on earth. And that is what Jesus is calling all of us into. A life where we see our enemies as those made in the image of God. People to be loved and redeemed by love rather than to be just destroyed. How do you think that might apply to us in the events of the last few weeks? in the light of neo-Nazi rallies in America and ISIS attacks in Spain? How do you think that we model the way of King Jesus by fighting against oppressive structures and violent people in order to win the freedom of both the oppressor and the oppressed? Shane Claiborne is an American writer and activist, and he says that if the followers of Jesus are to be peacemakers, which is what we are called to do, by the way, he says that we must be able to recognize in the face of the oppressed our own face. 
but also in the hands of the oppressor, our own hands. We have to stand both in solidarity with the oppressed, willing to sacrifice even our privilege in order to see them liberated, but also we must acknowledge the humanity of the oppressor, recognizing that we too could find ourselves in their shoes if the circumstances were different. And it's when we can love both ways, when we can reach out in both directions that we were able to bring people and communities together. Now, I understand that to speak like this could sound like I'm implying that the followers of Jesus kind of exist outside of these two communities of oppressed and oppressor, but that is obviously not true. Now, personally, as a white, straight, university-educated, non-disabled man, I don't experience a lot of oppression. The world that I operate in has been designed by people like me, for people like me, at the expense of people not like me. I mean, I am incredibly, incredibly privileged. And I'm understanding that more and more. So what does it mean for me to bring the kingdom of God? My responsibility is not just to stand with the oppressed. It's not just to show solidarity with them and to stand up to kind of structures. It's actually to recognize maybe I'm involved. Maybe I'm complicit in those structures that are doing the oppression. Maybe my privilege comes on the back of other people. What does that mean for me then? What do I need to do then? How do I work to dismantle those systems that I am part of? Now probably all of us in this room, many of us in this room, just by the fact that we are in this room, in London, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, we are all probably benefiting right now from systems that will have no future in the kingdom of heaven because they are built upon the, the oppression and the exploitation of people made in the image of God. Now, it's just that these people are very far removed from us. In the UK, we have a history of outsourcing our slavery. We don't do it here, we do it elsewhere. We just keep it at arm's length. We're detached from it. That doesn't make us any less complicit in it. And I know that that isn't a comfortable thing to talk about. That has some implications when we start talking this way. How do we live? How do we shop? What should our politics be? I mean, these are big, big questions, but these are questions that are happening all around the world. We need to be involved in these questions. We need to be talking about these things and debating these things and working out how can we bring the kingdom of heaven to the world that we live in. But bringing God's kingdom is not just about top-down structural change, although it is. It's also about bottom-up, person-to-person change. This next picture is a picture of um, a guy called Carl Locko. And I met Carl in an Afrobeats night in Brixton, because that's how cool I am. Uh, I was invited by a friend. Um, And I got to hear some of his story. Carl grew up in an estate, which is five minutes from where the South Service meets, literally just around the corner. And he grew up to two parents that loved him. He was good at school, but because of the community that he lived in, gangs were just a way of life. And very quickly, he got involved in the gang life. He says there were two main reasons for that. Firstly, he was just fed up being mugged, fed up being beaten up, walking around the estate. And he wanted to run with a gang that would protect him. And then secondly, he didn't see how the environment that he was growing up with and the systems that he was a part of were doing anything for people like him. The only people like him that he saw as having any kind of wealth and power were drug dealers. And so he decided to become a drug dealer, and he was really good at it. He had all this talent and energy and charisma and leadership, and he put all of that into running a gang. And he rose to the top of one of the most notorious gangs in Brixton. But that just brought him a whole world of pain. 
Carl says that by the time he was in his late teens, he'd been shot at more times than he'd had birthdays. He saw his friend stabbed in the heart in front of him. He himself had been shot and stabbed numerous times. He is lucky to be alive. And in many ways, he got to the point where he wanted out of this life, but he just didn't know how to do it, couldn't see a way out. Even talks of being part of a a gang is like an addiction. He was addicted to the lifestyle. He was a slave to it. But something changed for him. Something set him free. Something gave him the strength to actually leave that life behind, to use his talents for good rather than for evil. I'm going to play a video now and let him explain through a spoken word that he delivered at a TEDx conference in London a couple of years ago. Have you ever seen the eyes on a butterfly's wings? Deep like the gaze of a glorified king. For they can overwrite. They will overwhelm. Eternal light. Like, like they appear from another realm, another world, another life. Yes, another life. I too have known another life, another state. I am a walking contradiction. I should have shared another fate. I know a butterfly's fame, but felt the caterpillar's pain. My cocoon was love. But who will love the caterpillar? Drug dealer. Who will love the caterpillar? Gang member. Who will love the caterpillar? No, they can only love the butterfly. They take pictures of the butterfly. They speak scriptures of the butterfly, but label a nuisance. We that couldn't fly. They say that I is the window to the soul. So if you really look close, You can see the caterpillar's pain in the eyes on the butterfly's wings. It stings. So strange is change. So great is love. Love is my cocoon. Change is not a contemporary art, nor is it a recent trend. For the butterfly has been from the era Eocene, so for 50 million years it's been standing as a proof that change is real that change will come so I say cocoon to the sky for the butterflies proof that the old me can die so that the true me may live so now the wingless has wings but it took a while Metamorphosis, it took a trial, it took a hug, it took a kiss, it took a smile. But let the truth be told that this caterpillar was a butterfly all the while, just in need of that cocoon. Thank you. powerful stuff you should see it live when he performed that it's like man this guy's got a story and actually when he talks about love being his cocoon what he's talking about is the love of this amazing woman this is pastor mimi and pastor mimi was the mum of michael michael was his number two in his gang and just like carl 
good at school, good at home. First, didn't realize that he was involved with gangs, but then she got suspicious and she followed him out and found that he was running with a gang. And she determined that she wasn't going to let that happen, that she was going to do everything she could to rescue him from this gang life. And so the first thing that she did, she just opened up her home. She just fed him and his gang members. Gangs need to eat as much as anyone. She just had them over and created this space for them to come and to be safe. This space that was judgment-free. This space where she just loved them and loved them and spoke to them and spoke hope into them. And actually, four or five of them moved in with her. And for the next few years, she just loved them and loved them and spoke hope and spoke hope. And after a while, the message started getting through that things could be different, life could be different. And the hopes they had were, that when, the hopes that they had when they were kids started to come alive again. And as you can see, Carl's doing pretty well for himself now. His life is completely transformed. And Carl says that Pastor Mimi created by accident the first ever therapeutic community rehabilitation center for people involved in gangs. And his life mission is now to see that replicated. His life mission is to see gang members treated and rehabilitated rather than just incarcerated. Rather than just met with force to be met with love. Because force can stop something, but it can't change something. Only love can bring real change. I mean, that is kingdom work right there. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes trial. It takes a whole lot of love, but it produces real change. Maybe I'll have the band back. We see from the life of David that God's kingdom coming takes way longer than he had thought. It takes, it involves more opposition than he had anticipated, and it comes at a greater cost than he would have liked, but that it does come. For David, it took 27 years. 27 years from the moment that he was anointed to the day that he sat on the throne over the whole of Israel. And most of his life was spent in opposition. Most of his life, he was hunted down. He was fighting. But eventually, he ended up ruling over this amazing kingdom. That is the path for us, I am afraid. <laughs> the path of the kingdom coming is a slow path. And why? Because it has to be. It has to be slow. If we want it fast, that's when we need power and violence. But if we want it done with love, it has to be slow. I mean, just think about this. Remember the oppressive Roman Empire? It took 300 years after the death of Jesus for Christianity to be made legal. Another 200 years after that for the Roman Empire to be dismantled, but it was. And now when we think of Rome, what do we think of? Well, one of the people I think of is this guy, Pope Francis. What a transition that has been from Caesar who wanted to kill Jesus to the Pope of the church. But how many years has that taken? That is a long time. God doesn't seem to mind this kind of lengthy wait. Because he is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. We see the same thing on a smaller scale in the lives of Carl and Pastor Mimi. Self-sacrificing love. Over time, it takes time, it takes challenge, it takes heartache. But eventually it produces real change. See, God is at work even when it doesn't look like he's at work. He's always at work. Always at work in us and through us. Changing hearts one by one, until communities are changed, and then even whole systems come toppling down. And the world reflects the heart of heaven that little bit more, and that's what we're called to be a part of. 
And it can feel too big for us, can't it? It can feel like the hate in the world at the moment, the them and the us, these oppressive systems, so many people living in poverty. I mean, what can we do about that? I don't know, but we're called to do something. Let me just leave you with the words of Jesus before we pray and worship again. This is what he says in Luke 12. He says, fear not, little flock. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? It's a little flock of sheep, a whole world of wolves. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's promised to give it to us. He's promised that his kingdom will grow and grow until it covers the whole earth. He has promised this kingdom of love and righteousness and justice and freedom. That is his promise to us. Let us hold on to that. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for this promise of Jesus. That it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom for us to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, for us to see justice and righteousness, for us to see love and compassion and healing, for us to experience the presence of God in our own lives. And Lord, we may be standing here wishing that you would do things faster, but God, I pray you would help us, help us in the way, help us in the struggle to keep on living the way of Jesus, living the way of love, Help us to be people who are able to love our enemies, to see in them the image of God that you created. Help us to dismantle systems rather than people, to come against structures rather than wanting to see people destroyed. And Father, I pray that as we have conversations about this, as we talk about this, as we think about this, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us courage, Give us the boldness to start sacrificing some things, giving up our own privilege that we may raise other people up and see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, the King who we love. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.